Hi all, this is Dalvin here, the co-producer of the Utopian Podcast with Jenny and Caroline. I just wanted to ask a quick favor from all of you real quick before we start this episode, and that's to give our show a rating on whatever podcast service you're listening on. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you could just leave a few stars or just leave a review and do the same on all other services as well. It really helps us out on our end because the more reviews we get and the more ratings we get, the easier it is for other people to discover our podcast. Also, while you're at it, if there's a very specific episode that you enjoy, feel free to share that out on your social media accounts. And if you decide to do that, tag us in that as well. We're at Utopian Podcast on Twitter and at The Utopian on Instagram. And you can just search up The Utopian on Facebook to find us as well. And if you're listening to this on some other source and you haven't done this already, definitely subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. We're available on all services. All you have to do is just search The Utopian. That's U-T-O-P-I-A-N and then SB Press. And that will help you stay on top of any new episodes we release in the future. So that's all I have to ask on my end. Thanks for listening as always. Now, on to the show. We have more information now than we can ever imagine, but local news has faced no greater threat than it does today. With the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, the need for information is more critical now than ever. But from every angle, from social media to the White House itself, rhetoric continues to emerge, questioning the authenticity of conventionally trusted media sources. Today, we speak with Nora Benavidez and Victoria Vick, leaders in PEN America's campaign for free expression and advocates for local news. Frankly, it's really hard to give people tools when we're faced with leaders that are undermining a sense of collective trust and not committed to truth. You know, so much of our work now um, is really, I should say, for, you know, for several years, we've been concerned about the ways that information, especially online, have um, begun distancing themselves from truth, and that we've always known what propaganda is and the ability to try to shape people's opinions. But I think what we're seeing now is something so troubling at the kind of chipping away at democratic institutions that it's something um, we no longer just risk that it's the new normal. I think it is the new normal. My name is Jenny Dadari. And I'm Caroline Klowinowski. And this is The Utopian. guys give a little bit of background into how you got into this work of defending free speech and what exactly that means and looks like in the work that you're currently doing? Sure. I'm happy. Uh, This is Nora Benavides. I am the director of U.S. Free Expression Programs at PEN America, so I'm happy to give a very short introduction. Um, You know, we're an organization um, that really works at the intersection of literature and free expression. And we have always been committed to promoting free expression, free speech, 
um, founded by writers who almost 100 years ago, actually, were very worried about the way words could be weaponized and maybe used in political or other personal ways. And we have always fought, whether it's in the United States or around the world, for free speech and free expression, especially for writers who might be targeted for their work. We have members who are writers and readers and allies all over the country here in the U.S. And over the years, we have worked, um, myself and Victoria, on talking to our members and also monitoring threats to free expression. And one of the concerns that we have begun monitoring um, in the last couple of years is the threat to press freedom and to local news. And I'm really happy to be here with you all to talk about that work because it started out with sort of an initial idea around our research on exploring what the current threats to local news look like around the country. And we've refined that work. And um, I don't know, Victoria, if you want to say anything about some of this. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in November, we published a big report called Losing the News, the Decimation of Local Journalism and the Search for Solutions, which really looked at what the decline of local news outlets across the country means for communities and for democracy and what we can do about it. And the idea for that report actually came out of many conversations we had with our members and our constituents who are in every state across the U.S., and asking them what are they most worried about when it comes to threats to free expression, threats to press freedom, and that was one of the issues that kept surfacing. So it was really the inspiration for the for the research that we did and for the report that we published. When did uh, problems in local news start arising in America, um, and what contributed to sort of the decimation of journalism that you're trying to work on right now? It's a good question. So. You know, I would say that the decline really started around maybe 15, 15 to 20 years ago, but especially maybe about 15 years ago. And most through most of the 20th century, local news was primarily supported by ad revenue. So people would, you know, companies would buy ads in newspapers or um, for TV and for radio. And that was the primary source of revenue. Of course, people also pay for newspapers and pay for other sources of news, but that was often less um, of where the funding came from as a proportion. And when the, you know, with the rise of the internet and tech giants like Google and Facebook, much of how people consume news is moving online. And even though there are more ads being sold than ever, Facebook and Google and other major tech platforms are actually now siphoning most of that ad revenue that used to go to uh, news outlets um, because they're better at collecting our private data and selling it. <laughs> and uh, what's happened is that, you know, investigative reporting, beat reporting, the kind of journalism that we all need is quite costly to produce. And so without replacing that revenue stream, has put a lot of news outlets and newspapers in particular in trouble. And so that decline really started, that whole process started about 15 years ago. But because of the pandemic, it's gotten much, much worse in a very short period of time. Because as you can imagine, because so many businesses are closed right now, uh, the revenue that news outlets still were making, you know, from ads, um, from events, from other things, uh, 
is starting to dry up entirely. So it's really an acceleration of a trend that was going on for about 15 years. Before we actually started recording, we had a brief chat where you mentioned, yeah, like what you basically just said right now, where news ad revenue is on the decline, but there's almost like a weird paradox there, which is the fact that at least what I've seen, given the current moment, people are consuming more news than ever, mostly out of fear, out of the current situation, really. So is it just... Is it just like the attention is going in like the wrong place? Is it like they're just consuming mostly national news like CNN or are they really just not really paying attention to local news or like local news outlets to sort of get like an on the ground experience of what's going on in this pandemic? I think your description of it as a paradox is exactly right. It really is that because right now there are more people flocking not just to national outlets, but actually to their local outlets than possibly ever before, at least in terms of when we, since we've been recording traffic on um, news websites and newspaper websites. And many outlets are reporting that their traffic is absolutely skyrocketed. What a lot of outlets started to do when they realized that ad revenue was declining before the pandemic is they started trying to find new sources of revenue. So they started really trying to build out reader revenue. So that's to say like when a reader who appreciates your news, the news that you produce pays you, right? Uh, so through subscriptions, through memberships. However, um, it's really, really hard for small local outlets to compete um, with big national outlets for readers' hard-earned money, right? How many like newspaper subscriptions or digital site subscriptions could each of us possibly pay for on any given month? On top of that, local outlets, they want to do the right thing. So a lot of them have been lowering their paywalls, which is what they put up in order to get people to pay for their content for coronavirus coverage because they want to ensure that anybody, whether they have money or not, can access life-saving information about you know, what hospitals are open and accepting patients. When are the schools going to reopen? Like, What's your governor telling you or your mayor telling you you should or shouldn't be doing in terms of leaving the house? All that critical information. So on the one hand, there are more people going to their local news outlets than ever before. On the other hand, uh, all of the sources of funding that those outlets need and rely on uh, to pay their staff and do what they do are drying up. So it really is a paradox. It seems like there is this ethical dilemma that's being addressed right now because of the coronavirus, where news is becoming more accessible to people than ever before through platforms that are credible, so not just social media. Um, what do you think the future looks like even after this pandemic is over? How do we kind of reconcile that issue of trying to get as much good information to people as possible while still realizing that these platforms need money and funding to sustain themselves? Well, I'm happy to jump in. Um, I actually think one of the problems right now that we're seeing is over many years, as Victoria laid out, there have been sort of these growing waves of a crisis for local news outlets around the country. And then the pandemic hit. And rightly so, you know, news outlets are providing information and news to communities, which is absolutely fantastic. But they are suffering now in greater, larger and more serious ways than even before the pandemic. And there is this opening, and I'm sure some of you have, have heard about this, for information that is not credible to make its way into our lives and into our social media feeds, um, for people to sort of 
in this crisis, you know, that's full of heightened emotion, um, a lot of anxiety, concern, confusion, for people to be turning to places that they think might be credible and be digesting information and news that actually is not real, whether it is manipulated, whether it's, you know, misinformation or otherwise misleading. And so I think it's, you know, even imagining not quite what's going to happen after the pandemic, but what we're dealing with now, I think we're in a really vulnerable place that media is, on the one hand, we're getting this boom in communities being excited and um, eager for news. And yet the boom, because we're all consuming so much, is also met with this deluge of false and misleading content. And so in thinking about what we're going to be witnessing in the months or years to come, I think we have to imagine that that threat, the threat of misleading content, of credible information sometimes being eclipsed by information and news that is not credible by maybe bad actors, that that will not go away. And I think that when we're looking for credible information, it's going to be something that, one, I'm excited that, frankly, you're even asking the question. Because I think it's a distinction we need to start paying attention to. And we need to, as individuals, as people who are now basically online 24-7, we have to begin thinking about the differences between information and news that might be credible and might not be. And so we've been doing a lot of work in this space. It's sort of um, a sidebar to our local news work. And um, a lot of it is just trying to empower communities, empower people like you guys to make sense of what you see online. And a lot of that is understanding how the news gets made. Because I don't know about you, but I didn't know for many years what an op-ed stood for. You know, that it is not an opinion piece. It's actually opposite the editorial page. Um, little tiny things that might be fun kernels of knowledge, you know, um, are really exciting to think about right now. And how can we give people information that makes them excited to tune into what their local news is doing instead of being kind of on autopilot and just saying, oh, I saw this thing on Twitter. I'm going to take it as credible. But really thinking about in this age where we need local news more than ever, how can we actually be promoting credible news sources and news outlets? And how can we do that in a way where we're paying respect and hopefully paying for local news access. Um, I think it's going to be a really crucial next step. Um, frankly, something that's, you know, important right now and will absolutely be important whenever the pandemic passes. Nora's being really modest, but she's actually launched this absolutely incredible series of media literacy workshops, which are actually talking people through how to differentiate between disinformation, misinformation, stuff that's really deliberately meant to mislead you or to, um, you know, trick you or that's essentially propaganda from real actionable fact-based uh, knowledge and reporting. And so I did just want to make a small part because she, she's too modest to do it, but they were workshops in person and now they're amazing webinars. So you should check them out. <laughs> Nora, um, I'm curious since everyone's so desperate for news right now and there's such a great risk for misinformation, malinformation, you know, just like all these forms of incorrect uh, facts or um, something, information that's manipulated. Uh, but meanwhile, we have a president that sort of denied the severity of coronavirus. Um, so how can viewers or consumers of news 
sort of juggle both of these realities at the same time just wanting news but you know you watch the news and you know people in government say something else or everything's conflicting it seems like right now frankly it's really hard to give people tools when we're faced with leaders that are undermining a sense of collective trust and not committed to truth you know so much of our work now um, is really I should say, for you know, for several years, we've been concerned about the ways that information, especially online, have um, begun distancing themselves from truth. And that we've always known what propaganda is and the ability to try to shape people's opinions. But I think what we're seeing now is something so troubling at the kind of chipping away at democratic institutions that it's something... Um, we no longer just risk that it's the new normal. I think it is the new normal. And it the one of the only most promising solutions that PEN America has been working on is what Victoria really kindly alluded to, our media literacy work. You know, our sense is that um, we can no longer simply, you know, be on autopilot or be passive in the way we accept what even our leaders are telling us. I think we it would be wonderful to feel a sense of trust again, a sense of transparency um, and authority from our local, state, and federal leaders. But absent that, I think we need to all take a kind of responsibility and proactive approach to what we encounter online. And a lot of it is being able to differentiate between what's credible and what's not. And the, the lines have shifted. I thought it was interesting that you... Um, even knew the distinctions between things like disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation. So much of what we're seeing now is not just, you know, bad actors or trolls um, posting links in really quick ways. We're now seeing just the sort of misappropriation of imagery and videos that make us all, um, I think they, they're really easy um, to play on our emotions. And especially in this moment where we're so concerned about things, you know, it's easy to just um, be shocked or want to share something because it's so troubling. And so part of what we have to do, and this really does tie into our local news work, is we have to figure out ways, all of us, to think critically about what we see. And one of the questions that we can always start with is, well, what am I seeing? Is it news? Is this an opinion piece? Am I seeing something that's a video that was actually taken today or yesterday or last week? You know, some of what we've seen in the coronavirus context um, are videos that masquerade as news or reporting. And they're just they're reappropriated videos from years ago, um, you know, food shopping frenzy videos where it seems like this might be breaking news. And it's actually videos from 2013, 2014. And unfortunately, I never want to be in the position to tell people just be more critical. But we do have to start pausing. It's called um, creating friction. When you see something online, that's the term now is that we want to think a little bit about what we're seeing. And before you share, can you think about, do I have time to fact check this? Do I have time to um, figure out if the news outlet I'm looking at, maybe let's call it the local gazette, can I confirm that the local gazette is a real paper? Maybe it's a really exciting, almost clickbait worthy headline. And usually that's what misinformation and disinformation are, you know, really creating headlines that play on our emotions. And if you don't have time to fact check it, I generally say try to avoid sharing it. Um, because we need to be promoting credible journalism. We need to be thinking about um, the kind of 
standards and ethics and reporting that journalists are engaging in now. And the the exciting part is that our local journalists are so amazing. Some of the stories that they're working on now, I mean, they're risking their lives, um, especially during the pandemic, to make sure that they're giving communities credible information. So it's out there. We just have to honestly um, spend a little more time doing our own work as users and as readers. You sort of briefly touched on this before, but what role do companies or like large social media companies like Google or Facebook have on, I guess there are two sides to this, there's on the content moderation side, and then there's also on the economic side, because you briefly mentioned that, I mean, I know recently, I think I read somewhere that Facebook and Google, they have their own in-house sort of um, support programs for local newsrooms, but I don't know, it seems it seems skeptical to me because you're sort of like relying on the the same exact company that basically eroded your, that you mentioned, basically eroded your um, main source of income to begin with. And I mean, their efforts in kind of moderating what's what's true and what's fake and what's um, really hyper-partisan, what's not, have just been hit or miss before 2016, but even like post-2016 too as well. So I can address some of the question about big companies, you know, tech companies and local news. I will say the financial crisis that the local news industry is now confronting is so severe that we actually need an all hands on deck, everything like all of the above approach. So we need to have philanthropic funding. We need to have uh, funding from private sources, including tech companies, and we need public funding. And, It is a positive thing that Google, Facebook, and some other major tech companies have actually been giving hundreds of millions of dollars to support local journalism. Most of the time that money is not directly to support reporting, it's to like offer training or help them build out new revenue streams, etc. But all support is good support. The problem is, and Delvin, you nailed it, newspapers alone have lost something like $35 billion in ad revenue in the last 15 years. And tech companies are giving them something like hundreds of millions of dollars, but like low hundreds of millions of dollars in support. And so there's an enormous gap between the siphoning off of this ad revenue and the fact that Google and Facebook and other platforms are benefiting from the content that news outlets have to pay to produce but without actually putting any of that money back or very little of that money back into the outlets that are paying to produce the content. So one of the things we actually argue in our report is that we should consider something called an ad revenue tax, which would essentially tax companies like Google and Facebook for the money they make off of ad revenue and then funnel that into some kind of fund. We're arguing that it could actually be a new fund, something like, a national endowment for local journalism, the way that we have a national endowment for the arts and a national endowment for the humanities. And we can use that pot of money to directly support local news outlets, especially uh, in rural communities, um, ethnic media outlets, community media outlets, places where the local news crisis has hit the hardest and which are the most vulnerable and the most need, you know, accurate information that, They don't have to pay lots of money to access. So, you know, an ad revenue tax is just one of multiple things that could happen to support local news. Um, And I I really do think it's a good thing that these companies are giving money to local news. It's just honestly, it's just not enough. 
Do you think that if you pursued something like the ad revenue tax, the amount that these companies are currently contributing in philanthropic funding would decrease because they would now use um, that as a reason to say we're already giving money in that way. So, I mean, we need to kind of like give people jobs. We need to redirect our funding to more important things, quote unquote. So uh, what are what are just some balanced balancing thoughts on that? I mean, it's possible that that can happen, but if the goal is to increase the contribution from hundreds of million dollars to billions of dollars, um, there's been one proposal that an ad revenue tax could raise as much as $2 billion uh, for local journalism, you know, then it might be worth the shift right from philanthropic funding into a public pool. And like I said, unfortunately, very little of that philanthropic support from tech companies is actually funding journalists' jobs and journalism. They fund all kinds of skills building and training programs, which are really excellent and a good thing. But what we we're, what we need the most right now is to pay journalists to be professionals to do their job because they are trained. They, you know, have years of experience under their belt. They have networks. They have trust and connections. Uh, and that is irreplaceable. And if we lose that, it's going to be very difficult to plug those gaps. It's already happening, and it's already been very difficult. We've lost something like 50% of newspaper newsroom jobs in the last 15 years, so almost half. And actually, there are now 30,000 journalists that have either been furloughed, laid off, or had their pay cut just in the last month as a result of coronavirus. So it's it's urgent. <laughs> And uh, groups are pushing for, like, more funding for local news in the next coronavirus stimulus package. Is there any progress in that? Um, will it happen? Or is there any news about it? Or you know, <laughs> is there a line at the end of the tunnel for these local news outlets that are suffering right now, especially because of the pandemic? Well, we've been doing, uh, we're really active on this, Victoria, me, uh, the rest of our team here at PEN America. Um, months ago, I remember, I'm going to, I will answer your question, but setting the stage, you know, months ago when we started talking with other experts in this space, and Victoria was one of the, the lead researchers who was, who talked with a lot of the experts. You know, we, we thought through what solutions would look like. How do we actually help promote some kind of um, shift for support for journalists, whether it's local outlets or journalists themselves, other types of innovation? And it was really hard to um, kind of get consensus in the, throughout the United States with experts on how we might be able to create models that would provide a path for state and government funding of local news outlets, which is really what the stimulus is in many ways. It's sort of the emergency band-aid version of support from the government for local news outlets. And over the last several months, we've really seen a tremendous shift where people are really like, honestly, it's, it's like tectonic plates. We've seen this shift very slowly, but that a lot of the experts are beginning to come around to this and seeing the utility and frankly, just the, the necessity for government funding that would be um, one of the various solutions to promote and save local news. And so in the stimulus package, one of the things we were most excited about is getting a lot of groups on board to support. 
we had over 50 organizations um, in the last several weeks join PEN America and some of our colleagues who are in this space to call for Congress to include in the next stimulus round funding for local news, whether it's journalists or outlets um, and other innovative models. And honestly, in and of itself, we were really excited that that even um, got so much support. I think it's kind of shown how much this community has shifted. And I'm not sure we're going to be successful in this next round is the real truth. But there will probably be another round of federal stimulus conversations. And we are absolutely going to keep fighting for it. We're also going to keep fighting for funding um, for journalists at the state level so that absent something Congress can do, you know, we're really, we're not confident that Congress will take action, nor will they maybe do it in the way or the amount, you know, the scale that we would want. And so one of the things we're hoping is that we can do what we think of as almost wraparound advocacy, that we can be fighting at the federal level, that we can be fighting at the state level, and that all of those 50 plus organizations that we work with are also doing their part. So we're hoping in many ways to just shift the conversation to really move the needle to get people to become advocates and ambassadors with us in how crucial local news is. Victoria, what do you think? Well, I will say one thing. Uh, Nora's absolutely right that we've seen a true shift in people's attitude and ideas about whether uh, public funding is even possible. Uh, it's definitely an uphill battle to get anything done in Congress, but uh, we had 19 senators actually uh, write their own letter in support of including local journalism in, in their next stimulus, which is huge. I think even two months ago, I, I would have been shocked if that had happened, and it happened. And there are multiple senators talking uh, very sort of loudly and clearly about how much we need to support local journalism, and that was not happening several months ago. So that's that's progress. And that's how progress goes. It's <laughs> slow and fits and starts and one step forward and two steps back, but that's the only way that you can make change. So, Are there any models, I guess, overseas outside the American context that we could sort of bring over here in the U.S.? Because... I mean, outside of like, I guess, what, like PBS and like local NPR stations, that's, that's really like the big, the, that's the scope of publicly funded media for the most part. I mean, I know the UK, they have BBC and things like that. Is there anything that we could look at outside of our borders that would sort of serve as like a good model going forward or like sustainable model going forward? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. We thought a lot about that when we were working on our report. The uh, U.S. funds public media in this country. And when I say public media, I mean only TV, radio, broadcasting. We don't have any um, direct mechanisms right now to fund newspapers or digital news outlets. But we fund that through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And the amount of money that the U.S., uh, invests in supporting media is 30 times less on average than many developed democracies in the rest of the world per person, just to give you a sense of the difference, right? A lot of folks have very valid concerns about what happens when government 
supports journalism, right? Because journalism is often speaking truth to power and investigating government corruption and malfeasance. And so you don't want a situation where the government can try to prevent journalists from writing certain things or saying certain things. But in terms of trying to look for models of where that's actually working, uh, the top uh, countries, so there are these things called press freedom indices that essentially there are several different organizations that rank countries based on how free their press is along a whole series of indicators. And there are several countries that often come at the very top of the list of these press freedom indices, like um, the Netherlands, uh, Norway, Sweden, uh, Denmark, Belgium. Those are also the countries that spend the most money per person on funding local journalism. So there is clearly something that they're doing right or mechanisms that they've put in place. Now, of course, those countries are much smaller than the U.S. and we have states and, you know, states approach things differently. And that that is all stuff that has to be thought through, which is one of the reasons why we actually called for a congressional commission. We want to bring together a commission of experts uh, to essentially look at models outside the U.S., to look at existing models in the U.S. and propose a potential path forward for funding journalism in a way that also protects editorial independence. So it can be done. It has been done. Um, and even we in the United States have actually been funding journalism, too, since the 60s. And we've actually indirectly been funding journalism since the country was founded, um, which a lot of people don't realize, through uh, postal subsidies, tax breaks, government ads. Government spends lots of money on ads in local media outlets. So we've been doing that for a long time. You've mentioned before a national endowment uh, that's based on attacks of internet companies uh, and their ad revenue, right? Um, I'm starting to wonder, is there any sort of model like that involving internet companies that often take away ad revenue from like local journalism and sort of giving it back um, outside the U.S.? Or I, I don't, I honestly don't know for sure, but I haven't seen a model like that. I haven't seen an ad revenue tax uh, tried anywhere else. Um, there is something called a link tax that's happened in Europe, uh, in France, in uh, Spain, in Germany, and now it's EU-wide. A link tax is different from an ad revenue tax. A link tax is basically when every time in a search engine like Google or, or a social media platform like Facebook, when they have the title of a news article and a clip, right, so a couple sentences on what the news article is, they would have to pay publishers a small fee. So it's almost like copyright, right? Like if you're using a piece of music somewhere or something like that for using that uh, bit of content. That has happened in Europe. It has been a mixed bag in terms of how successful it's been. Um, but that is a model that the ad revenue tax I haven't seen play out yet elsewhere. What are some ways that you've seen newsrooms sort of adapt to this lack of funding that are sort of, I guess, creative, because, I don't know, depending on where the situation goes from here, I, I don't know, would it be like, say, citizen journalists sort of like taking up the mantle and sort of like, sort of collecting information on their own? Because, I mean, even then it's like, okay, anyone with a camera, anyone with, I guess, Twitter, or like Facebook live stream or whatever could easily document something that's going on anywhere in the country. Uh, 
yeah, what ways do people or just societies really adapt to that lack of <laughs> lack of like media coverage really in certain areas? That's a fantastic question. Um, I can uh, tackle some of it, and then Nora can jump in too. But uh, we have a whole section in our report on the extraordinary innovation and adaptation that's been taking place across the news industry, particularly in local news. It's really remarkable what people are doing out of passion and with very, very little resources. It used to be that newsrooms were constantly and exclusively competing for one another, you know, who could scoop one another, uh, you know, put one over one another. And right now what's happening all across the country, especially under the pandemic, but this was happening before, is that outlets are joining forces. So they are helping one another. They're giving each other tips. They're sharing data. They're actually sometimes pooling resources to share office space because, you know, it's too costly for every different outlet to have their own space. Um, they're doing all kinds of collaborative efforts. There's also been a real wave, a very positive, very necessary wave of community engagement. So journalists and newsrooms really sitting down with the communities that they serve and figuring out not only what kind of news and information they need, but uh, whether and how they can afford to get it and what channels that they're going to you know, be able to access it on. You know, what if they don't have internet? What if they don't have time to read 10 different websites? You know, can you text them information? Can you... So we've seen an extraordinary uh, amount of that kind of innovation adaptation. And it's enormously heartening because local news is not a perfect system. It never was. It had real inequities, systemic, historic inequities, and that's still true. And some of these efforts um, to engage communities much more deeply and seriously have been a step towards fixing those inequities and actually meeting communities where they are and, and giving them the information they need. So that's all been extremely positive. The problem is that you need money to be able to do that. And so there have been, you know, not only tech companies, but major foundations and philanthropists uh, giving money to make some of this innovation possible, but it's, it's just not enough. Yeah. The one thing I'll add on sort of the, I'm looking at our time and everything, I'm sensitive to it. I, there's something I'm excited about um, because there's so much to be concerned and worried and completely overwhelmed by in this um, crisis. The one thing is that I have never seen real people more excited about supporting local news than right now. That at a time when we are um, online more and needing information and news, people actually seem very excited about learning why local journalism matters. And I think what is so exciting about it is that we might actually be making this shift from the notion that the media is an adversary or somehow characterizing things poorly or always in that gotcha kind of posture. And that the idea that local journalism can actually increase our ability to connect with each other, our ability and interest in engaging in democracy is so important. And it makes it a fun talking piece. It isn't a sort of boring, staid type of topic, which means I think we have this unique moment. And we've seen it, as Victoria mentioned, in the senators that have come to our defense and sort of in support of local journalism. We're seeing something shift so that there is suddenly this invigorated interest in defending journalism as what we call a public good. 
the notion that journalism and local news can really make the difference between our ability to engage in democracy or not. And in this moment, you know, there has not been a whole lot of silver lining in the pandemic. Um, but I think this is maybe one of them, that suddenly people want to come to the defense, um, rally around support for local journalists. And so we're really excited, actually. Next week, we're about to launch a new campaign for World Press Freedom Day. It's going to be a spotlight on all of the local heroes that are journalists around the country. So some of them are student journalists that are currently on the front lines trying to give college students information about the pandemic. We're going to be doing profiles and sort of spotlight interviews with journalists who are in various communities around the country. And I do think that it's the one kind of silver lining here that we're going to see more excitement, passion and noise being made about the issue and that it really is critical to our democracy. So I'm excited about that one small piece.